0: Beloved, to the child of God, that means that anything we have, even that which is most precious to us, we hold with a night not tight grip. It may be a beloved husband, a beloved wife, could be father, a son, could be a job, could be all of our wealth, could be our health. There was a wonderful believer that demonstrated this very powerfully in his spiritual life and in one particular way, even in the context of his wealth. The great evangelist, the great abolitionist, the great missionary to the orphans, the 19th century British man, George Mueller. Uh, By virtue of God's blessing, even in his ministry to the orphans, Millions of dollars, it said, even in the 19th century, passed through his hands. Yet, when he died, he was almost penniless. Now, what's interesting is even though he was penniless, when people would pass him on the street, they wouldn't see him downcast, they wouldn't see him sullen. They wouldn't see him downtrodden. They wouldn't see him as a poor man. In fact, the people, when they would pass him, say, there's an educated man. There is an uplifted man. There's a gentleman. There's a gentleman. And the reason, Mueller said, that he made great pains to make sure he didn't look sullen and downcast was, I would never want someone to look at me and think I serve a master who's not generous. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai, the third last book in the Old Testament, the 10th of the 12 prophets that are sometimes called the minor prophets, not minor in importance, but minor or short in duration. The first of the three post-exilic prophets, three of the, the first of the three prophets that spoke to the nation of Israel after they returned to the land from the Babylonian captivity Uh, some 50,000 people had returned after the decree of Cyrus in fact even winding back from that we know that God's hand has always been on the nation of Israel and still is even to this day in the 19th century before Christ they went into captivity in Egypt some 430 years later God rescued them and brought them back to the promised land in the 8th century they were taken into captivity in the hands of Assyria, and then in the 6th century BC, they went into captivity in Babylon, and then in 538 BC, a good king Cyrus, good from a human perspective, who was a Medo-Persian king that had just recently taken power from Babylon, issued a decree that said the nation of Israel could go back to the land that God had promised them and to build the temple, Uh, Some 50,000 went back with the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua, and they began rebuilding the temple, and they laid the foundation in 536 BC, but then opposition arose. The neighboring tribes were coming and were persecuting them. And then even worse, even more pernicious, they began to become complacent. And for 16 years, they focused their attention and their efforts not on the work of the Lord, but on their own self-gratification. And this was the backdrop. When In the year 520 B.C., God raised up a man, a man named Haggai, and sent him to the people. Haggai was a man of one message. He prophesied four words, four words that came from the Lord by the hand of Haggai. He began his ministry on August 29th, 520, and taught all the way until December 18th. He was a man of one message rebuild the temple in these two short chapters these 38 verses that is his primary message and the exciting element that we saw last week in chapter one in the first word of the Lord that came by the hand of Haggai he basically told the people to repent and rebuild and out of the rubble of the ruin came the restoration of a remnant. The same God that moved the heart of King Cyrus stirred the hearts of the people so that 23 days after his message, they began to rebuild. Then the stagnant people became a stirred up people. And beloved, the first word of Haggai was a word of rebuke to a distracted people. But now the second word of Haggai, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is a word of encouragement to a discouraged people. And what Haggai does in these first nine verses of chapter 2 is he encourages the people, and God encourages you and me, even some 2,500 years later to look backward to the past and then that's in verses 1 through 3 and then in verses 4 and 5 to look upwards in light of the present and then finally in verses 6 through 9 to look forward to the future. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read our passage here this morning. Actually, our passage here this morning are the first five verses. This second word of Haggai is so packed with riches. We're going to break this into two Sundays. I'll read the entire word, the first nine verses, but our text goes through verse five. Haggai 2 and verse one. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also Joshua son of Jehozadak the high priest. And all you people of the land take courage declares the Lord and work for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear for Thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. As I mentioned, we're going to look at the first two components, the past and the present. There are two encouragements that we have in these five verses. From Haggai to the people, from God to you and to me. First, remember the past. Secondly, redeem the present. And the intent here is that this people, this people that have become, they went from being this people, a kind of a detached address that God gave them back in chapter 1 verse 2 and then in verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 1 this people becomes the remnant but the remnant are becoming discouraged and God wants to encourage them and us to do the work of the ministry to strengthen the hands of the people of God in the work of God by looking to the word of God so beloved the verse encouragement from God to you and to me is remember the past. The 19th century British poet William Wordsworth said Wordsworth said this, "Let us learn from the past to profit in the present and to live better in the future." That's a good description of precisely what Haggai is saying here. And our text begins, verse 1, on the 21st of the seventh month. This is still the second year of King Darius. All the way from chapter 1, verse 1, and the last verse, verse 15 in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. It's now October 17th again. The first word came on August 29th. And then, not like Jeremiah, who preached for 55 years with almost no indication of repentance, nor like Micah, who preached 20 years before repentance. 23 days later, on September 21st, after the first word of Haggai, the people repent. Now, some 26 days later, not even an entire month, the second word of the Lord comes. Because the people are becoming distur- discouraged and they need another kick in the. I mean, they need another encouragement from the Lord. Beloved, The Screwtape Letters records the dialogue between a senior demon Screwtape and his junior apprentice, Wormwood. And there's an episode in the book where Wormwood is coming and he's frustrated because all his strategies and tactics aren't working. And Screwtape says to him, have you tried discouragement? Because discouragement always works. Beloved, that is the situation here. Haggai recognizes that, and he recognizes that as the people need this kick in the behind that he needs to nip the problem in the bud. He level sets the situation, and he deals with this encroaching discouragement. Haggai is a man of conviction. He's a man of fortitude, and he doesn't mess around because Haggai knows that faith needs to learn and faith needs to grow. Faith needs to learn how to overcome. Faith needs to learn how to persevere. On this side of eternity, we're all a work in process. In his commentary on Haggai, John Calvin said this, Hence also we may learn how necessary it is for us to be constantly stimulated. For Satan can easily find a thousand impediments by which he may turn us aside from the right course, except God often repeats his exhortations to keep us awake. Beloved, that is the word of God given here to the people. Now, when he says on the 21st of the month, when that phrase comes to a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, especially in the promised land at that time, that would be the same thing as someone saying to you now, on the third Thursday of November, or on the 4th of July or on December 25th. The 21st day of the seventh month was the last day of the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was the seven and last feast as prescribed by God to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 23, for example. The Feast of Tabernacles and this day was the last day of celebration of holiday on the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Booths was one of three feasts where God had instructed the nation of Israel to go and appear before the Lord your God in the place of his choosing. Deuteronomy 16 verse 16. The Feast of Booths was a celebration. It was a celebration of the end of the autumn harvest. It was a celebration of the ingathering of the crops, beginning with the first fruits of the crops, and then Third and final it was a celebration and a remembering of God's miraculous provision for the nation during the 40 years of their wilderness wandering. So beloved Haggai's audience right now also has swelled because according to Deuteronomy 16 verse 16 all the obedient males of Israel this is one of those three times where they would come to the nation of Israel they would come particularly to Jerusalem. So the audience for the second word of Haggai now on October 17th is much bigger than the audience that was just the remnant and the leaders in verse one on August 29th. And look at what it says. He says, speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant of the people. What Haggai is doing here is he wants to spur a realistic appraisal of the present in the light of the past. And what he does here is he gives three rhetorical questions in verse three, three questions that don't need an answer because the answers are self evident. And what he's doing here is he's pivoting. So he began with speaking to the leaders. And one of the differences with the second word is right from the beginning it's the leaders and the remnant. But now when we go to verse three, he pivots from the remnant and he's directing his attention to the older people in the generation. And as you think of this, you might have been in a situation where an older person comes to you and says, well, back in the day or, or in my day, and you think, oh boy, okay, here it comes. And, and even the young people today are getting in on this. The 20-year-old that posts TBT, Throwback Thursday, and you think, how much ground do you have to throw back to, Sonny? <laughs> well, The situation here, look at verse 3. He says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Assyria had actually looted the temple. So the point here is what Haggai is doing is he's focusing attention on the older people that are at least 70 plus and maybe even 80 plus years of age. Why? Why is Haggai focusing on it at this point in time? Turn for a moment back to Ezra chapter 3. In the book of Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 is where we're first introduced to Cyrus and we begin to see his decree and then in Ezra chapter 3 we see at the beginning of verse 1 Ezra 3 it's the seventh month And this is back again in 536 B.C. But I'll begin reading in verse 8 to help us understand the dynamic that set the stage 16 years earlier to the events we're now reading in Haggai. Ezra 3, verse 8. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, And the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hennadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy From the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So, beloved, 16 years prior to what we're reading in Haggai, the shouts of joy of the younger were mingling with the tears of mourning of the older. And the case here is the discouragement is spreading. The discouragement from the older men and women is spreading to every generation, to the leaders and the lay people, to the people in the land, the remnant in the land, and the pilgrims in the land, in the city by virtue of the Feast of Booths. Charles Spurgeon said this, as we would leapfrog in terms of an application to the church, Spurgeon said, Those complain first in our churches who have the least to do. The gift of grumbling is largely dispensed among those who have no other talents or who keep what they have wrapped up in a napkin. And beloved, in the case of Israel, in the promised land back in 536 B.C., and now 16 years later, it is the older men and women that are bringing this discouragement, that are the source of this potential defilement. I remember when I was uh, working out with my private sessions with my fitness coach, Zach Miller, through 2020. And I remember at that time, he made the observation, I found it fascinating, he said, "It's, it's my age group, it's people in their 50s, where basically the curve of fitness and health, where it just kind of spreads out, where the standard deviation increases. That's my engineering interpretation of what he said <laughs> what, what he was saying was the people on one side of the curve the other side it's in the age of 50s where that really starts to spread where there are some on one side it's have a greater interest in health and fitness and then others on the other side, or even as the body begins to fail and pain comes in, some pain is weakness leaving the body. And there's a different dynamic of where you know, some might, may try to you know, increase things and keep things going through the pain and others not. But, beloved, the point here, in the same way in this case, and I think very often for some older people, the gap between the encouragers and the discourager gets wider as people age. Now, when I say this, understand this, we take verse by verse, passage by passage. This is not something that I would apply to the older men and women at San Can Bible Church. I am greatly encouraged by the encouraging older men and women, almost to an individual down to the T. But this is the word of God, and this is the situation, certainly in the nation of Israel. And look at verse three, continuing. He says, goes to the second and third rhetorical questions. How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, this temple comparison that Haggai is pointing, where he's trying to illuminate the present by having the people remember the past, this is not like comparing a house in Paradise Valley and a house in Florence. This is comparing a house that is gutted and ruined and is a skeleton compared with its former pristine estate. And even when we think of the temples, I myself will refer or may refer to Solomon's temple. And Zerubbabel's temple, and then later Herod's temple. But the question we ask is how many temples are there? Three or two? One, there's one temple. In fact, in verse 2, he says, literally, the temple, this house. There's one house of the Lord, one temple of the Lord, which at that time was the physical temple. In our time, it's a different situation. And, beloved, here the issue for this physical edifice, this temple, it's not a matter of size. In fact, good King Cyrus's decree basically decreed a size similar to Solomon's temple. The issue is the way the people are looking at the temple, the way they looked at it 16 years earlier, and the way they're looking at it now, the external grandeur and magnificence. The gold in Solomon's temple, we know, according to 1 Kings, had 666 talents. With 1,058 ounces per talent, and the price of gold on Friday, I checked, was $1,792. That amounts to almost $1.3 billion of 2022 currency in the temple in gold. And the situation here is it's not a resource issue. It's a heart issue issue that is what Solomon is excuse me that's what Haggai is trying to get the people to understand don't look the way man looks god doesn't look the way man looks god looks at the heart god looks at what is on the inside and the issue is a spirit of defeat and demoralization and discouragement and so what Haggai does with these three rhetorical questions is he brings out to the surface what is beginning to foment in the heart he takes the elephant on the table and he cooks it for lunch and serves it because beloved seeing can be deceiving seeing can be deceiving the reference to the former glory in the question he's not talking about the glory as god would measure glory he's talking about the external glory where the people were focusing man looks at the grandeur of the edifice not the indwelling presence of the Lord. So even though this one temple, this one house of God for the nation of Israel was a physical building, it represented God's favor and God's presence and God's pleasure with the people based upon their worship, based upon their love and faith and trust and worship and work for him. And the situation here for these people is very similar to a situation you and I may face. The people of God have taken their eyes off of God and are beginning to stumble, or are at risk of stumbling by virtue of it. In from 1899, from November 1899 to February of 1900, the siege of Ladysmith was a protracted engagement in the Second Boer. War in the township of Ladysmith in Natal, which is in what we would now call South Africa. And it was interesting, as this war was raging, there was a civilian in Ladysmith that was arrested, court martialed, and imprisoned for a year. What was his crime, you ask? Discouragement. This man that was arrested, court martialed, convicted, and imprisoned didn't take up arms for the enemy. He wasn't a traitor to his country he wasn't even disloyal to his country what he was doing is he was going around and he was spreading seeds and words of discouragement to the soldiers he was a discourager in a critical time beloved for you and me in christ the words from the apostle paul to the church in thessalonica is the final application in this context first thessalonians 5 verse 11 Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And that, by the way, is one that I would apply to the older men and women at Santan Bible Church and for all of us to excel yet more. So first, beloved, we are to remember the past. The second encouragement God gives to you and to me is redeem the present. Redeem the present. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae, Colossians 4 5, he says, make the most of the opportunity. The original Greek language literally says, redeem the time. Buy back, rescue the time. Carpe diem, seize the day, seize the present, or redeem the time. And what God does here in verses four through five is he gives three commands to you and to me so that we would be galvanized with encouragement rather than paralyzed by discouragement. No matter what our lot in life might be, no matter what valley and shadow we might walk through, no matter what trial and tribulation, the three commands are be strong, work, and fear not first in verse 4 be strong and what haggai does here he basically answers the three rhetorical questions that didn't need an answer with this threefold command in verse 4 of be strong zerubbabel be strong joshua and be strong all you people of the land declares the lord three times now in the new american standard it says take courage if uh, you have the ESV, it says be strong. Be strong is a slightly better translation, so I'll go with that. But be strong. And what's interesting is this threefold command, he gives it to the individual Zerubbabel, the individual Joshua, the two leaders, and to all the people of the land. But. In the original Hebrew grammar, in each case, even the third, it's a singular imperative. So even when he speaks to all the people in the land, which is the people and the pilgrims, the remnant and the men that had come for the Feast of Booths, he states it in an individual capacity. Beloved, we have a corporate responsibility as a local church of God and you and I each have an individual responsibility. And that's part of the sublime beauty of the word of God even here. And the command, be strong, is a very common command from the Lord in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the Old Testament. God gave it often to the nation of Israel. For example, through Moses to Israel, as they were sitting up on the plains of Moab, getting ready to go in and enter and take the land that God had promised to them, God, through Moses, tells Israel in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Don't, be, don't tremble at the inhabitants. That You remember the ten spies with the bad report said we're like grasshopper in their sight. He's saying be strong and courageous. Don't tremble at them. God spoke to Joshua when Joshua, Joshua is a man to be reckoned with to be sure. But when Joshua picked up the mantle of Moses, I mean, that would make any man quake in his boots to take the mantle from Moses. God tells Joshua, God commands Joshua, Joshua 1 verse 9, Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. First Chronicles 28 verse 20, David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then finally, Hezekiah, when Hezekiah is, when God is prophesying to the nation of Israel through Hezekiah, when the Assyrians are threatening them, in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7, Hezekiah says to Israel, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. And then, of course, beloved for us, when the Apostle Paul gave his beautiful letter to Ephesus to the church in Ephesus to the Ephesians in chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 with that magnificent discourse of the holy war of God the spiritual war in which you and I are soldiers and the armor of the Lord Paul begins that with be strong verse 10 be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might beloved be strong and know your strength comes from outside of you comes from the Lord now, back here in Haggai, be strong. It's interesting. I'm going to borrow the picture from competing fitness industries. When God commands you to be strong, he's not commanding you to be spiritually strong as a bodybuilder. He's not saying be a bodybuilder. Don't be spiritually strong just so you can preen up on stage. God is, metaphorically speaking, commanding you to be strong like a Spartan athlete, like an endurance athlete. Be strong to do something. We see God saying, Be strong, then look at the text, and work. Do something with the strength, with the empowerment that you receive from the Lord. Be strong and work. That's the second. Command. The situation is the people in the land, even though the foundation of the temple was laid, it's been 16 years, so they're going to have to clear the rubble that accumulated during that time. They're going to need to assess the strength of the stone and the strength of the walls. They're going to have to gather and identify the workmen. There's much work to be done. And to compound the situation in these 26 days from when they began their work at the end of chapter 1 and this 21st day of the seventh month, besides the normal Sabbath days of Sabbath rest that they were forced to take, on the first day of the seventh month, that's the feast of trumpets and no work was allowed. On the tenth day of the seventh month, it's the day of atonement. And then the fifteenth day of the month is the beginning the 15th is the beginning of the week long feast of booths during which they don't do work but the people of Israel and the people that have come into the land live in booths outside the city or in the city in temporary booths to do the celebration or remembrance I talked about before so the whole point here is there's interruption there's work to do they haven't been they started it but they've had all these times that have been taken off and discouragement is being set in so he says and work and work and beloved this command here remember Haggai is a man of one message rebuild the temple the centerpiece of the second word verses one through nine is this command work and it's the centerpiece of these three commands we're looking at here he says be strong and work and then on the back side work and fear not now one will reasonably ask well Why should I be strong? How can I take courage? How can you expect me to work? You don't understand my situation right now. You don't understand the opposition. You don't understand the poverty and meagerness of supplies. I'm a frail person. I'm not a gifted man. I'm not a gifted woman. The hopelessness of my situation. Beloved, the remedy for the fearful and the faithless is to lift your eyes off of the discouraging circumstance and lift your lies upwards to the presence of God with you and the promise of God to you. To the presence of God with you and the promise of God to you. First, look to the presence of God with you, and that's what he says right here in the middle. He says, for work, for I am with you. This is God's merciful and guiding presence. And in fact, all four of the examples I gave before of where the command is given to be strong, all four of those verses finish with this assurance of God's empowering presence. So when God says to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 31 verse six, be strong and courageous, the verse finishes, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you god to joshua joshua 1 verse 9 be strong and courageous for the lord your god is with you wherever you go david to solomon in the first chronicles passage for the lord god my god this is speak, father david speaking to son solomon for the lord god my god is with you he will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of lord is finished The very same house that is right at the center of the target of work. Build, rebuild the house. And then finally, Hezekiah to Israel, 2 Chronicles 32. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. The one with us, God with us, is greater than the enemy that is with the king of Assyria. Beloved, this is the empowering presence of the Lord. And then at the end, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, 29 times in these 38 verses, you see the formula of Revelation, some form of thus saith the Lord, because if he doesn't speak, we don't exist. And this is the Lord of hosts. If the God of the mighty armies doesn't speak, we don't exist and we can't do anything. So be strong and work. The third command, work and fear not. Verse 5. Bless you. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And we'll take these clauses in reverse order. Do not fear. Fear not. The first and last command that bracket the center command work are almost the same. Be strong. Fear not. Because the situation here is It was the same for the post-exilic people in the land as it is for you and for me. Faith and fear, fear and faith. Everybody has both, good and bad, right and wrong, strong or weak. Right fear is the fear of God. Wrong fear is the fear of anything else. Weak faith produces wrong fear. Right fear produces strong faith. And, beloved, when we look at the entirety of Scripture, we understand that being a fearful man, being a fearful woman of anything other than God, is not a little sin. In Revelation 21, juxtaposed with a beautiful promise and picture of the eternal joys and glories of heaven, where every tear is wiped away and there's no more pain, there's no more mourning, there's no more sorrow, juxtaposed with that, is a description of who will be barred from the gates of the city, the people that will be in hell rather than in heaven. In Revelation 21, verse 8, look at the first entry on the list. John writes, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second Death And again, the first entry on that list is the cowardly. So being fearful is not a small sin. And I would say that a fearful Christian is a close second or maybe even slightly ahead to a hypocritical Christian in terms of doing damage to the witness and the cause of Christ. But the middle clause here in verse again points to the empowering presence of God he says my spirit is abiding in your midst my spirit is abiding in your midst in Isaiah 63 verses 11 through 14 Isaiah reminded the nation that even when God rescued them from Egypt Uh, when Abram came out of Egypt that his spirit was with them his spirit has been with the nation of Israel from the very beginning or Nehemiah 9 verse 20 Nehemiah says you to God gave your good spirit to instruct them so this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the nation of Israel now well, notice that he says my spirit is abiding in your midst. He doesn't say my spirit is within you because this is the theocratic empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit to the people of God under the old covenant rather than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the new covenant of the New Testament. For example, when David repented of his great sins of adultery and murder, and wrote the beautiful Psalm 51, he said, Take not thy spirit from me. Beloved, David's fear is not our fear. The New Testament Christian, you and I in Christ, we should fear, we should greatly desire to not quench the spirit or to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be concerned about the removal of the spirit. But back here in Haggai, as we wrap up, we look to... The presence of God with you, and we look to the promise of God to you. And when we think of a promise, even taking our mind down at a human level, what is a promise worth? Well, who is the one who gives you the promise? How good is His word? How did He frame the promise? Whoever gives a promise, did He frame it, I will do this? Or did He frame it, well, if this, then that? But what we do here is we look to the promise of God, verse 5 at the beginning, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt. Literally, as for the promise which I cut with you when you came out of Egypt. Beloved, a covenant, a promise to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was more about cutting a covenant or cutting a promise rather than writing or even saying a covenant or a promise. For example, Exodus 24, verse 8, you read these words. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has cut with you. Now, to be sure, when this... Sec, this post-exilic nation of Israel in the land hear this, they would immediately think of God's promises to them at Sinai as part of God's word to them through Moses, part of even the Mosaic covenant. And that's part of what Nehemiah was talking about when I read that quote before. But not only would they think of God's promise to them after God had taken them to this point and after God had taken them out of Egypt out of their captivity in Egypt they would go even far from that farther back and look at God's promise to Abraham because not only did God rescue Israel from Egypt at the time of Moses God also rescued Abram out of Egypt in Genesis 13 and it's in Genesis 15 when God cut his covenant when God cut his promise with Abram. Abram had been fallen had fallen asleep god had a sleep come over him and in genesis 15:17 through 18 you see these words it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. That's the original source of this exhortation to the people in the land to build the temple in this place of God's own choosing. That darkness, smoke, and fire that we just read of is a picture of the awesome power and unapproachable holiness of God and What the Lord does here, the Lord is swearing as he's cutting this covenant, he's swearing this covenant to Abram. And the Lord doesn't swear by heaven, which is his throne. He doesn't swear by the earth, which is his footstool. The Lord swears by his own nature, by his own person. That's why in Genesis 22 verse 16, God says to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now, The situation here is God passed between the pieces of the animals there in Genesis 15 by himself while Abraham is sleeping to make sure we understand that this covenant, this promise he's giving is a unilateral, unconditional, eternal, and irrevocable promise from God himself to Abraham and to all of his seed. And the difference here is God says, I will do this. Now, When God gave his promise through Moses to the nation of Israel after he rescued them, when he cut and established the Mosaic Covenant, in Exodus 19, he said, If you do this, then you will be a people to me unto this. And then after God gives this if-then statement to the nation then, the people say, We will do this. And what happens is the people didn't do that because the Mosaic Covenant, God's promise, God's covenant to them at that point was basically giving them the law. And what does the law do for us? The law, according to Paul through Galatians, is our tutor master, our schoolmaster. It's our tutor. It points us to Christ. It points us to the fact that we need a Savior. We need a situation where we aren't resting on We, Us saying I will do this or me saying I will do this. We need God's unilateral, eternal, unconditional, irrevocable promise that he will do this for us. That's why what he did with Abram is so important. That's part of what Paul talks about when he's writing to the church in Rome. In Romans 11 verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So beloved, from Haggai. From God's good word to the nation of Israel at the time of Moses. Of God's good work and promises to Abraham. Of God's good word and work all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. We have great encouragements from the Lord for all his people. At all times in every circumstance. But not only by Remembering the past, not only by redeeming the present, but by rejoicing in the future. In verses 6 through 9, when God draws our attention and tells us to look forward, what we see there is four I will statements from the Lord. Four I will promises from the Lord. And the beauty and the power is that all four of those are still future for us. There's a certain measure in which there's an already kind of down payment that we enjoy in the church. But the same I will promises of what God does in Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9, given to the people there, are the same promises that God gives to you and to me. I will, I will, I will, I will. Thus saith the Lord. And beloved, There may be a great churning of history, empires may vanish, empires may rise, but the promise of God pierces through. And dear believer, four times, I will, I will, I will, I will, based on the promise of God, based on the word of God, a promise, a word, cut (laughs) with his own blood, shed at the cross at Calvary. Don't miss it. And Be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged by looking to the presence of God with you and the promise of God to you for the next six days before next Sunday. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you, Lord God, that our strength comes from you it doesn't come from ourselves we praise you and thank you lord even for the indwelling presence of the holy spirit we praise you and thank you that you hold on to our salvation you gave new life to us at our rebirth when we were born again and you hold on to us and you will one day finish and complete that which you began in us we praise you and thank you for your words here in Haggai and lord may we take these words and apply them to our lives for your glory, for our joy, for our enablement, for our ministry. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.